Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. What's today? Well, today is December 20th, 2023. Almost 2024, guys. On it, honestly, like logistically, I just don't quite understand how that is feasible, but here we are. And honestly, uh, today was a pretty good day. It up in Truckee on my lunch run, I felt like I was back in the Basque Country or in Asturias in northern Spain. Just that soggy, wet, drippy, foggy mist, low visibility. It was kind of nice, even though then I remembered, well, last year we already had feet and feet and feet on feet of snow, and I could be Nordic skiing. I love running. Running's my passion. Running's my number one sport, but this time of year, it's kind of nice to get out on the skinny skis and put on some music and just go off into my world. But anyways, today I did that just via running and it was it was a good day. It's it's you know, I'm I'm kind of really embracing 2024. 2024 I am going to I think run more races than I've ever run and I am going to finally learn either Italian or Portuguese. I haven't totally decided which one. I think Italian is calling me more, but Portuguese would be easier, so probably Italian, but you know, with my Spanish background, um I, I just want to learn something else while I'm still speaking Spanish, so should be fun stuff. Anyways, I want to start with a clip that I'm not going to spend that much time on, but I want to play the clip and then react a bit to it, and this is a clip of Jason Whitlock, who is now with the uh, with the Blaze. He was an ESPN sports commentator and analyst and writer who was fine, but now he's, you know, he's speaking at Turning Point USA rallies. And he's on the blaze. So that's really all you need to know here. But this guy is a real uh, piece of work. And basically, he he was at day three of the Turning Point USA um, event. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. And he raged against women's suffrage and talked about how not everyone has to have a vote. He talked, of, I mean, basically, he is showing that Christian nationalism of like, the family should vote, not just a woman. And I think he's relating to abortion and gender roles and all of that stuff. That's what I gather from it. You guys let me know if you think differently. I'll play the clip in a moment. But there is something, I hate to say it, there is something just insane or insanely ironic about an African-American man talking about how not everyone has a right to vote. It's not The irony's not lost on me there. And this guy's insane. And, and again... You can not like Joe Biden, you can think the other side is crazy, but this is what the right is up to. It's all culture wars all the time, and the through line of it is minorities, women, immigrants, they're, they're not big fans of letting them make decisions. And this clip, again, shows that. And so anyways, this is, this is the right, again, admitting that they really aren't into the whole representative system stuff. So let me play the clip. We'll talk a little bit more after it. We didn't have vacuum cleaners. We didn't have Clorox wet wipes. It took a lot of effort to maintain a home in the 16, 17, and 1800s. Women in their proper mindset, in my view, were so respectful and so honored by the responsibility God gave them of nurturing and developing and grooming children in the womb, because that is when life begins, 
that women weren't sitting around saying, oh my God, if I was an advertising executive, how much happier I would be. They weren't upset that they weren't the primary financial providers in their home. They had the greatest responsibility that God has given. Life. They were <laughs> by, by the way, they didn't really have a choice, though, did they? I mean, just asking questions here. Responsible for replenishing the earth and nurturing life in the womb which is the most critical part of the development of children, what transpires in the womb. And so they have recreated this history that, oh God, it was all just sexism, and we didn't have the right to vote until Susan B. Anthony and the women's suffrage movement. And, and I will defend life before suffrage because a vote used to represent the family. When we were a culture that really valued family and really understood the natural order that God intended, man serving God, woman following man who serves God, man and woman developing and nurturing children, you only needed one vote per household. That is, a, that is quite a line. You only needed one vote per household. This guy is not into democracy, guys, because this is just not how our system works. I mean, obviously, at a time that was how our system works, we've come a long way from that. And this is so regressive. Jesus. Because that vote was about the entire family, as they have destroyed our family structure and made this all an individual pursuit. Now everybody has to have a vote. And everybody has an agenda that a lot of times has nothing to do with family. Oh, God. I mean, how dare everyone have a vote in a country that counts votes to elect people to make decisions? Oh, Jesus. You know, I think the thing that really bums me out about this is that he views the women's role and the right to take care of children as a God-given power, a God-given right. But what is always infuriating to me is that not everyone in the United States is a Christian, and not everyone in the United States has that exact same value structure. There are even Christians that have different views on this stuff. And what about agnostics, atheists, the Jewish community? Hin excuse me, Hindus, Muslims. It's just a little bit insane to me that he thinks his vision of how gender roles should be and what women should do and abortion and protecting the family, they're all God-given. As you guys know, I'm no atheist by any means, but I, I get sick of this growing Christian nationalism when this country isn't solely a Christian country. And again, I mean, guys like Jason Whitlock, who used to be a fine sports commentator and writer. I mean, he is, again, saying the quiet part out loud. I don't even know if there's a quiet part anymore. I mean, these people, ranging from Trump to him, and everyone else pretty much in between, are saying the same thing, which is, we don't really want a representative democracy, a democratic republic, whatever you want to call it. We also don't particularly want everyone to be able to vote, because we realize 
when people vote, sometimes they don't vote for what we want because we're kind of in the minority opinion on a lot of these issues. So this is what the American right is up to these days. And, you know, the troubling thing here is that Charlie Kirk and his Turning Point USA bullshit, it's huge. It's really popular. It is kind of the new young Republican movement. And as I've talked about before, when I was in college, I was a young Republican. I am now no longer a Republican. I'm no longer part of that. I have really, I don't know, living abroad. I was telling a coworker last night at a dinner party. I was like, I went from being um, a pretty high-ranking member of the Republican Party at my undergraduate college, the college Republicans, to now kind of being pro-government and um, enjoying public policy and spending and understanding that government's important. And I think it was my time in Spain seeing seeing just how that system worked and also living in Chicago and seeing what happens when government doesn't deliver and also just learning about why government should not be run like a private institution and blah, 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 blah. I could go on. But this this Charlie Kirk movement is the new young Republican one, and it's completely, completely lacking in policy. It's completely lacking in logic, and it's completely lacking in solutions other than just culture war issues. And I'm getting fed up with it, but it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. Anyways, moving on, I want to talk about a troubling deal that is happening between Nippon Steel, Japan's largest steelmaker, and U.S. Steel. CNN writes here in quotes, U.S. Steel has agreed to be bought by Nippon Steel, Japan's largest steelmaker, in a $14.1 billion deal. The deal marks the latest step in a gradual decline for the iconic 122-year-old company, which was one of the largest companies on the planet. It was one of the first major conglomerates and a symbol of American industrial might. But it is no longer even the largest U.S. steelmaker, having been, having been surpassed by Nikor Steel years ago. So there are, there's like many layers to this. I think Japan, or Nippon Steel, the Japanese company, is seizing on this right now because it knows that both the Trump and Biden administrations have invested in protecting these companies. And Japan sees this as a golden opportunity to buy this. It already has the manufacturing. It has the money. It has the locations. It's going to keep this steelmaker in the United States, but own it and run it from Japan. It can. There are worries that it will be able to source jobs to cheaper states or out of the country. And basically, Nippon Steel has the business might and the efficiency and just the wherewithal to do this. And so it's going to do this unless the government gets involved here. Now, now of course, there is also just the symbolic lens to this, which is like, this was once a huge company. It's been around for over 100 years. It resembled kind of the industrial might of the Midwest. And now it's being bought by a Japanese company, which to me, this is just the symbol of the NAFTA era and the end of American industrialism. And, and there's just that, that no matter what happens here, that plays really well in an anti-Biden 2024 ad by Donald Trump or DeSantis or Nikki Haley or whoever it may be. Then also the third lens here is that some worry it could be bad for national security because now one of our biggest, man well, was one of our biggest, now obviously passed by Nikor Steel, but a pretty fairly big manufacturer is now being owned by an ally. It's not like it's being owned by like China or something, but it is no longer going to be in the control of the U.S. And so 
those are kind of the different layers to look at this through. The Hill also has a good piece that I think gets into detail about the backlash that we're seeing from this. The Hill writes here in quotes, lawmakers in both parties are up in arms about the $14.1 billion deal. And basically the reason the article talks about is that they think the deal could A, threaten national security like I talked about, but it could also also shift steelworking jobs to non-union states, and it could also undermine U.S. industrial capacity. And basically it gets more interesting because on Tuesday there was a letter sent to Janet Yellen, who is obviously the U.S. Treasury Secretary, and mainly Republican senators said the committee, sorry, the committee, I can't speak, on foreign investment in the United States should block the sale. Now, I've heard a lot of people talking about how Biden should block this. I think it would be more complicated than that, and it would be better if you did see the CFI US, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, do it. Because foreign direct investment, not exactly what we're seeing here, but we are seeing a problem. But now the thing here is that we are seeing like the Senate Banking Committee chair, who's Sherrod Brown, who I wish would run for president, by the way, Democrat from Ohio, great guy, I think dances well between being a centrist and kind of a progressive. And he's criticized the deal for stemming unilaterally from management and not including union employees in the decision-making process, which is something I totally agree with. He said in a statement two days ago, in quotes, Nippon and U.S. Steel have insulted American steelworkers by refusing to give them a seat at the table and, he, and raised grave concerns about their commitment to the future of the American steel industry. Absolutely true. And I think something that is lost in this conversation, or at least from other podcasts and articles I've read on this, is that it should be noted that U.S. Steel would become basically an unlisted company as part of this deal. And it would be basically Nippon Steel's North American division. So it'd be a subsidiary of Nippon Steel. And basically, the brand name and headquarters would be the same. But it would just be owned by the Japanese firm instead of U.S. Steel itself. And so, I mean, I'm not a fan of this deal whatsoever, I think the national security concerns are warranted. And I also just think the messaging of it is warranted. And just the just the backbone of it, the idea that kind of a company that's been a staple of American industrial history can be bought by another country that wants to just be able to control the market. I don't like that. But anyways, I think because it would still stay in the United States, but would be under different leadership, different ownership, I mean. I think the worries about the unions being kept out of this and basically management management making this deal with the Japanese without bringing union members into this is a sign that I think the company would also be willing to move to right-to-work states as well. And that changes the entire dynamic of this company, and not in a good way. So then there's also the politics of this. <laughs> this is this would not be good for Biden. Not be good for the Midwest. I mean, I, I think it's obvious that obviously steel production has left the United States. But the symbolism of this is crucial. And also there are still hundreds of thousands of Americans, mainly in the Midwest, Illinois, Ohio, 
that are doing this, and this is an important part of the community and meaning, then I I do think this I do think this impacts just how a lot of America has been built. And this is again just another nail in the coffin of that. So we'll move on. But I do think the last thing I'll say is that Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois, the Democrat, he said he thought that there was something fundamentally troubling about this merger and that he's concerned for and well he's been concerned for excuse me for years about US steel's production cuts. And again, I will just be devil's advocate and say that if US steel was doing well, then you probably wouldn't see this happening. So there's just so many layers to this, but I just don't like the idea of it in principle. So anyways, I want to talk about Biden and young voters. And little hint here, not particularly great. The Economist notes here in quotes, no Republican candidate for president has won most voters under the age of 30 since 1988. However, a poll by the New York Times and Siena College published on December 19th found Donald Trump leading Mr. Biden by 49% to 43% amongst voters aged 18 to 29. Later, the article, sorry, the article talks about how this is a swing in this poll to Mr. Trump of 10 points since July. I was also looking at another one from the Pew Research Center, and apparently this is a huge contrast to 2020 when Biden won that age group by 24 points, 49 to 30, or sorry, 59 to 35. So now you have 49 to 43 instead of 59 to 35. No bueno. No bueno, mis amigos. And, you know, from my understanding, national polls are sometimes hard at looking, well, not from my understanding, just from anecdotal evidence and just from what polls show us, younger voters usually compromise smaller samples. They're harder to target. They're harder to get reactions from. And you see this now. I mean, I think most of the pro is or sorry, pro-Palestinian protesters despise Trump as well, but now they're souring on Biden. It's hard to see how they'll vote. Like maybe some of them will just try to go as a third party to just send a signal that they don't like Biden's stance on Israel all of that type of stuff. But it's hard to really pinpoint where they're going to be, whereas older voters, they usually stick to their party unless they're independents. And so there's a group called Split Ticket. And in early December, they aggregated subgroups across numerous, numerous polling across the country. And the results were, I don't know if it's a sign for Biden's campaign to go into danger mode, into red alert mode here, but split ticket did show that there is static and that Biden's reelection could be in danger. And so the economist writes here, split tickets results showed in quotes, Mr. Biden leading Mr. Trump by a diminished, but still substantial margin of 16 points among younger voters under 30 yet by only three points when younger voters were defined as those under 34. So the margin is shrinking. And my argument would be that these people are being polled. But will some of these younger voters actually vote for Biden? Because anecdotally in my own life, I know a lot of people that voted for Biden in 2020 and have now soured on him because they feel like there's an ineptness to him. There's a lack of control that he has. And I'll get into that in a minute. And I don't think any of that's true. I think Biden's actually been a better president than I thought. I reluctantly voted for him in 2020. And I will probably strongly vote for him in 2024 because I just see the writing on the wall of what the alternative would be. 
And I think he's just bad at marketing himself. He's bad at marketing his accomplishments. But there's been a substantial amount of accomplishments. And, and okay, so there's another somewhat troubling poll. Harvard has something called the Harvard Youth Poll. And it brings up a more complicated, convoluted, trouble, but still troubling poll. And it found that Americans under 30 really didn't trust either Trump or Biden. And I always listen to David Packman's callers on his Friday episode. Again, he's a progressive podcaster. And he gets a lot of leftist callers that don't seem to differentiate Trump or Biden anymore. They're thinking of voting third party or not voting, and they don't really like either one. But anyways, this Harvard Youth Poll (laughs) found that Americans under 30 trusted Trump on some things that would make sense. The economy, national security, the Israel-Hamas war, crime, immigration, and strengthening the working class. The poll also found that they trusted Biden more on climate change, abortion, gun violence, and protecting democracy. Honestly, I think all of this is insane. The Biden one is totally true. Biden believes in democracy. He wants to limit guns. He is pro-abortion, or at least pro-choice. And yeah, he is making kind of a sustainability green revolution part of his his um, his federal economics. And so, yeah, of course, Biden, those are true. But looking at looking at Trump here, I mean, yeah, the economy was better because he was riding off the laurels of what Obama did. And also there wasn't a pandemic. National security, George Floyd happened under Trump and he wanted to use the Insurrection Act and pretty much just quell all of it using force. Also, January 6th is kind of a thing. I think that's a bit of a threat to national security. He also had crackpot attorneys going around with fake slates of electors trying to overturn an election, which leads to civil unrest. The Israel-Hamas war? Eh, I don't know. I mean, crime, for example, I mean, I guess arguably Trump would be better on crime because he just wants to shoot shoplifters and execute drug dealers, which is just insane. Immigration, another one. Well, yeah, he wants to do mass deportations and set up camps on the border. He wants to literally become a fascist at the border and a fascist on crime. So, yeah, I guess arguably he would control it better, but also he would pretty much violate everything that this country stands for in the process. And then on the strengthening of the middle class, or the working class, sorry, wasn't his like big legislative accomplishment those tax cuts where they've expired for the middle class and they've helped billionaires? <laughs> perception is crazy. Perception is crazy. And the perception is, is that Trump is law and order and he'd be better in foreign policy and he would strengthen the border and strengthen the working class. And that Biden's weak and frail, and it's sad because I just don't agree with any of that. But perception is something that's really hard to beat. It's really hard to beat. And also in that Harvard Youth Poll, Biden led by 11 points among Americans still. But the problem is, is that he appeals to the people who went for him because they opposed Trump. So he was just seen as the better of two evils. They found that 69% said they did so out of opposition to Trump. But the problem is with Trump, it's actually about loyalty and love for him. The Economist writes, 
60 percent, 65, sorry, percent of those favoring Mr. Trump said they felt loyal to him. So Biden doesn't have a loyalty thing. So that's why when you see Israel, inflation, pulling out of Afghanistan, whatever it may be, that's why it's easy for Biden to lose support while Trump doesn't is because there's a loyalty to Trump that Biden just doesn't have because Biden's never had that same base. And, and, and that is really worrying if, if the world keeps seeing so many different crises. It really is worrying. And the last thing I'll say before we move on back to Trump is that I think The Economist in a different article brings up a good point talking about how Biden has a style problem, but he doesn't appear to be in control as well because you have Israel Hamas. You also have the war in Ukraine, rising prices. And, and The Economist writes here in quotes, rather than cocooning the president, his aides need to find more ways to present him as a commanding presence. Failing that, they could make more use of the cabinet secretaries and portray Mr. Biden as the wise leader of a high-functioning team. That is fucking brilliant. I'm sorry. That is fucking brilliant. Like, Biden needs to seem as like that elder at the table who brings in smart people that are keeping everything stable, which is actually kind of what he's doing. The opposite of what Trump 2.0 wants to do, which is bring in sycophants and yes-men who are fine with all of the most radical radical elements of what Trump wants to do. And Biden needs to be better at that. But I think the reality is, is that we've learned now we're about three years into Biden. He's not good at this and he's probably not going to change. And so these numbers are troubling. And again, we're a year out. I think Trump has not been in the public eye quite enough. And I think once he wins the Republican nomination, which I think he will, I think once he comes back into high, high coverage in the media, people might change their opinions and realize how crazy this guy is. That's at least my hope. Maybe I'm just gaslighting myself. Who knows? But I will say this, and I've said this, I, I mean, I, numerous times at least, ad nauseum. Progressives, Democrats, leftists, centrists, just remember that you might not like Biden, you might not like everything he's doing, but Trump has told us, he's shown us what he wants to do, and it is all just significantly worse than Biden. Speaking of Trump, <laughs> I want to talk about that Colorado Supreme Court decision again. And um, so this was, of course, Anderson v. Griswold, which is historic. It's this landmark 4-3 to three Colorado decision. I talked about it a little bit yesterday, holding the Section 3 of the, of the, sorry, they got cut off there, the 14th Amendment, prohibiting Trump from serving again as President of the United States. And George Conway... Kellyanne Conway's ex-husband, as I'm sure you guys are aware. He has a really good piece in The Atlantic that I think brings up some interesting points. I don't agree on all of them, but there's some interesting points. And basically his point is that he was hesitant about this Colorado Supreme Court decision. He thought it was too good to be true. But now he says the strongest argument for throwing Trump off the ballot is the weakness of the counterarguments via the dissents in the court. And he writes here at one point, dissents are intellectually useful. If there's a weakness in the majority's argument, an able judge will expose it, sometimes brutally, and they may make you change your mind or at least be less dismissive of their position, even when you disagree. And I think this is true. Is When I was taking my admin law classes back in Chicago, um, we were always told, don't look at the majority decision all the time. Sometimes the dissents can really highlight maybe issues in the case or criticisms of the case that are meant to be heard. And like Justice Kagan, 
for example. I think she's really good at this, for example. But basically, Conway's point is that he find like basically he goes through and reads dissents. That's kind of his thing. Obviously, he's a lawyer. He was well. Well, I think he still is an active attorney. Very. He was a prominent Republican attorney in the pre-Trump days. But he writes in quotes here. Last night, I reviewed the three separate dissents in Anderson v. Griswold. He then later writes, the dissents were godsmacking. Mainly, mainly it was because of their weaknesses. He talks about how they did not want for, you know, legal craftsmanship, but there was no semblance of a convincing argument either. He writes later, in quotes, for starters, none of the dissents challenged the, district's, sorry, the district court's factual finding. By the way, we have to remember a district court said this wasn't constitutional. They weren't holding it up to <coughs> Colorado's constitution. And basically then the Colorado Supreme Court stepped in and then ruled in the opposite direction. And and I, I think the point he's trying to make is that basically none of the dissents actually argued that Trump didn't engage in an insurrection. He talks about how none of the dissents actually questioned Trump's actions under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. He writes later in the article, sorry, I'm quoting this a lot because he says it better than me because he's a lawyer. And I'm not a lawyer, but I I like to read lawyers. And he says, the three dissenters mostly confine themselves to saying that the state law doesn't provide the plaintiffs with a remedy. But that won't help Trump. And he gets into some interesting points here about how the case is headed to the Supreme Court of the United States. But the thing is, is that this is about state election law. And he just argues that the Supreme Court doesn't really have the authority to make definitive pronouncements about state law. And he writes later, in Colorado, the Supreme Court of Colorado has the last word on that, and now it has spoken. And so you have some interesting arguments being made by the dissenters. None of them are good. So one of them, Justice Carlos Samur, he basically says that Trump was deprived of due process. (laughs) which is kind of laughable. I'm literally laughing. And this was a five-day trial, guys. Like, it wasn't like Trump didn't, like, his case wasn't heard and his side of events wasn't heard. But also, like, Trump has a disadvantage here because the whole story, the whole narrative, the whole escalation of events is kind of public knowledge at this point. And the thing is, is that Trump was given to uh, due process because they had extensive findings of fact. It was done under stringent standards of proof. And Conway writes later in this rant, he says in quotes, every day in this country, people go to prison for years with a lot less process than Trump got here. And I think that's probably true. Another justice, Boatwright, (laughs) his suggestion was that the insurrection issue presents something too complex for Colorado. (laughs) And then Conway responds and says, what about Florida? What about the hanging chads in 2000? Conway writes, reviewing the tabulation of statewide votes can be complicated. Remember those Florida chads in 2000. But the courts have to get it done quickly, and they have. So I I think Conway brings up an interesting point here about how basically all the dissents are doing is saying that Colorado can't handle this, and it's going to the Supreme Court, but they're not actually questioning the legality of Trump's actions or whether or not he was actually involved in insurrection and something that would qualify him under the 14th Amendment, um, Article 3. 
So it's kind of interesting to me. Anyways, before we're out of here, I want to just briefly talk about this new Alex Garland movie called Civil War. It's an A24 movie. I think it's coming out in March, maybe? I don't know. It's coming out in the spring of 2024. And the trailer has been released. And there's been a lot of reaction based on the map. <laughs> the map of the Civil War. What I mean is the country's fighting against the, you know, the central government. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of people are saying this map doesn't make sense. So basically what you have is you have California and Texas each standing alone, but they work together. You also have the Western forces, which is kind of like a conglomerate that takes over a lot of the Northern United States, like Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and many others that I'm forgetting off the top of my head right now. But that sounds not particularly feasible. And then you also have the Florida Alliance taking over the Southeast, which would kind of be like the South. But then you also have the Loyalist states, which includes like New England, the Midwest, parts of the Southwest, Hawaii, Alaska, and Colorado. And I was reading an article, I think it was in The Hill, and it says that this means that Colorado would be at odds with Utah to the West and Wyoming to the North based on this fictional Civil War map and how the Civil War breaks out. Now, I think... I think it's good that this movie is not just going like red, blue, rural, urban, because geography, and I've talked about this before, and there's a lot of really good scholarly work on this. Barbara Walters' book, How Civil Wars Start, talks about this. She talks about how you would have a balkanization of this, which basically would be like you have like different communities in the same country, in the same states, turning on one another. It wouldn't be geographical like the Civil War we saw in the 1860s because you have states like Texas where Austin is blue but the surrounding territories are red or Georgia where Atlanta's blue and you have rural areas that are MAGA up the yin-yang. And so there's no way in hell you see like just a perfect geographical war. And it seems to me like it's good they're not going for this this urban-rural divide because that would just play into all of the narratives that are already existent about the people kind of wanting a civil war or calling for a civil war or saying a civil war is inevitable. Now, I have my own thoughts about all these movies. I mean, I leave the world behind. I've seen three times now. It's more about a cyber war or a cyber attack that like cripples the United States and leads us into basically like a misinformation war that breaks us internally. But then you have that, that which was produced by the Obamas, by the way. And now you have Alex Garland's film coming out soon about a civil war. It just seems like civil war is on all of our minds. But I think a lot of people are going, oh, Florida and, I mean, not, not Florida, uh, Texas and California would never form an alliance you wouldn't see some sort of Western alliance without California in it. And why are the loyalists, the countries that, or the, not the countries, the states that they are. But I, but I think the idea is, is that Alex Garland is trying to make an abstract look at what it means to be American and what it means if there was like a civil breakdown. So I'm excited to see the movie. I truly am. But I've just seen a lot of people criticizing the map. But what are they, like, <laughs> that brings up the question to me is like, do you want, the map of this fictional Civil War movie to be more accurate? Is that what you want? Do you want it to be like rural Texas, like turns on Austin? Is that what you want? Do you want like Georgia to 
circle Atlanta and say Atlanta is not part of Georgia. I mean, I don't think you want that because those are like actual worries about civil division that we have in this country. And I don't think we want a movie that's probably going to be a blockbuster success talking about that as well. So that's my like quick take on that. But I am curious to see the movie. I watched the trailer today and I'm not going to lie. It gave me chills because there's like a part of the movie where in, in the trailer, they ask the president played by Nick Offerman, who's great, by the way. They ask him, how do you feel about bombing American citizens, doing airstrikes on American citizens? And I just got the chills when I heard that. So it, it, it's going to be a movie. It's definitely going to be a movie. I'm going to watch it. But I don't know if I like this Hollywood growing, ex, uh, like this growing obsession in Hollywood about civil war. Yeah. I'll just end it with that. So anyways, it's been a long, well, not that, not that long of an episode, but I'm tired. So I'm going to get out of here. Lots of unique news as always. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios.